ball is high. It is far. It is gone to win the game. The Mets are on their way back. World champions for the 27th time. Home plate for all things Major League Baseball. This is the Nosebleeds Podcast on WFUV Sports. Hello and welcome to the Nosebleeds Podcast. I'm Chris Bonchu with Nick DeLuca, and it is a pleasure to be back on Nosebleeds, breaking down baseball as we really move into hot stove season, Nick. Uh, Some uh, of the dominoes have fallen. It's been slow, as we expected at the winter meetings, but the Mets make a move. There's a little bit of news uh, for Major League Baseball this season. But all in all, there, there's certainly some conversation to be had here uh, as the sport moves into uh, the Christmas season, which a lot of times uh, teams are hoping for a, a tree, uh, a gift, I should say, under the Christmas tree. Yeah, for sure. And it's been a slowly moving offseason, as you mentioned, and that was what we all expected because of the uncertainty surrounding COVID-19 and really the budgets in baseball more so than any other sport. That, that rules the day. The money that is available to some of these owners is certainly not the same. It's not a salary cap sport the way things are a uniform adjustment across the board in a sport like the NFL in football or in, in basketball or something like that. So we knew it was going to be slow starting. And it, it's it's been interesting. Even some of the smaller moves that have been made are, are really substantial in some ways and, and have a domino effect in looking at the rest of the outlook in free agency. And I was really fascinated by the Mets going out and signing James McCann. It was not something that I had really expected. Didn't think it was something that was going to be on their radar. I kind of expected them to go bigger. I I thought they might make a run at JT Real Muto, but that's not the case. They go with James McCann, who I think is a a solid player, but just as things heat up and now – the questions about where does that leave things for Real Muto and some of the other catchers on the market and how much money do the Mets have left to spend and how much are they going to? So a ton of unanswered questions and really happy to be here breaking it all down with you. Yeah, and, and the catcher thing is interesting because it's, it's one of the Mets' big three needs. They kind of check off one of the boxes, which is catcher. They could use another outfielder and they could certainly use starting pitching help. And, and I should mention they've they've already – sort of uh, helped out with the bullpen and Trevor May, and, and perhaps they, they, they even have more moves on that front. But certainly interesting in McCann, they give him four years, which I think is a little bit more than, than anybody in the market was, was willing to go. I'd be curious to know if anybody else offered him four years. I, I, he cashed probably in not. on – I agree with you there. Probably not. He cashed in on really two good years, um, which is enough to get a contract in this world, especially if you're – at the catcher position where it's hard to come by offense, but the Mets certainly go to a clear number two to JT real Muto. And there's a lot of distance between the two of them, but I think it certainly sets up um, some more moves. It's, it's only the, let's call it the second move that they've made with, with a lot more still to come. But before we launch into the Mets and then the Yankees, where there's also intrigue, um, let's start with a couple MLB headlines because just uh, not long before we, we came on here to record, baseball is saying, or at least um, some reports coming out from the game, that they don't expect to start until May, which is, you know, it's it, it, even even at this point of the pandemic, it's, it sometimes can come as a surprise. You know, baseball starting in May, it sounds bizarre. 
because you thought that after a 60 game season, we'd at least be able to get our full full baseball back for 2021. That doesn't appear to be the case, Nick. Uh, it looks like baseball is going to have to play a shortened schedule, whether that's 120 games. I mean, I would hope that there are still over 100 games so we can really talk about a legitimate year. Um, and hopefully we don't have to deal with with the nonsense of something like games. But um, it, it's, it's unfortunate to see, but the hope is that things are looking up. We've seen the first vaccinations in the United States this week that when we start baseball in May, uh, we, we can genuinely, hopefully, even fill, even fill seats in stadiums. Yeah, I, I don't think that starting the season in May is such a bad idea, particularly when you're talking about potentially being able to alleviate some of the concerns about the protocols that go into playing a pandemic-filled season and everything that goes along with the COVID-19 conversation. So I think that would be positive. And, and additionally, I don't hate the idea of playing a 120-game season, especially if the playoffs are going to be expanded to allow 16 teams in. The nature of the regular season is going to see some devaluing, and that's just that's the reality of, of the situation that we're in right now. You know that the owners are going to want to play that expanded postseason to try and reclaim some of the revenue that was lost last year. So when you get the opportunity to have that expanded postseason and maybe shorten the regular season and not sit there and be playing as many meaningless games, I don't think that that is a, a bad thing. Because at the end of the day, no matter how good you are in the regular season, you are still as you get to the postseason playing three games and you go home. Now, it may be easier, especially if you're reintroducing fans into the fold to play those games at home. That is some advantage and especially will be more so when you're playing at your home ballpark. But to me, you're still playing three games or going home anyway. The, the regular season actually isn't as huge of a deal as even it was over 162 when the playoffs were not as expansive. So I don't think that 120 games and starting maybe mid to late May is the worst thing in the world. You know, they might not have a choice in the matter. I mean, I certainly don't want to see this uh, ridiculous expansion of, of playoff teams. I, I am so opposed to that. To, I to agree, see. but it's happening. That's just it's happening. Yeah, it's happening. So so here we are. That's the story. Um, let's go to Cleveland because the Indians are going to change their their team name. They follow the Washington football team in responding to calls to change a name that is viewed as racially insensitive, especially to Native American and indigenous communities. So they're going to change their name. They say they'll, they'll stay with the Indians moniker through uh, the 2021 season. So they still are the Cleveland Indians. But after that, they turn over a new leaf. This sort of opens up questions about other franchises that Maybe we'll see the pressure ratchet up on the Atlanta Braves or the Kansas City Chiefs of football. But in either case, you've seen a shift here. It's not unprecedented for teams to change their names. Um, it actually, if you, if you look back, you'll find some unfamiliar team names throughout the history of the game. It, it happens. Um, I'm not sure if it's ever happened in the game of baseball for this reason, but the Cleveland Indians are, are on track to change their name. Am I the only one who wants them to actually go by the Cleveland baseball team this year? Because I, I, I got to say, you are. 
when maybe I am, but when, (laughs) when Washington came out and said they were going to be the Washington football team this year, I I was sitting there like, come on, that's just so dumb. You can't do that. But I got to tell you, it's kind of grown on me a little bit where I just think it's kind of funny, especially in the context of a list of, of all these team names, right? If you see, you, you look up Washington's defense in, in league rankings and you see, you know, wh- whatever it is, if it's the Chiefs, the Bills, the Jets, and then football team, I just think that that's kind of amusing. So that's that's where I sit on that. But it's such a, a weird situation in that they are kind of admitting the fault there that, hey, this isn't the best name for us and we we should change it, but also aren't going to change it until next year. So it's kind of reminiscent to me of Daniel Snyder's uh, sort of investigation into the team name before they ultimately ended up changing it. So to me, this doesn't do a lot right now. I think it's at, at the end of the day, the right thing to do as you move forward, I don't know that any team should be based on a race of people. It just never made a ton of sense to me. So I think getting away from that in the year, you know, 2020 and the society that we live in can't be categorized as a bad thing. So I, I suppose there is credit at some level to them for making this change, although the change isn't really happening. So it's, it's just a weird reaction from my perspective, because you want to say, Hey, that's a good thing that you're doing good job. But at the same time, you're really not doing it. You're just announcing that you're going to do it later. It's a little bit odd in that way. I, I, I agree with you. Um, yeah, it, 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 it strikes me as, as funny in that sense. But um, it, it, I agree with you about the, the football team. It, it did actually start to stick when you would just refer to, you know, who, who, who are the Giants playing this week? Oh, they have the football team. And it, I guess it's, you know, I guess it's kind of cool to be known as the football team. Um, but in any case, uh, the, the Washington football team was sort of unprepared, which was bizarre to me. Um, because they had been under even more pressure than than the Indians, who they got rid of a logo that was offensive. But the 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 Washington football team ha- has a ha- had a team name that isn't even really um, worth repeating on our airwaves. It, it, it was a true slur, as opposed to the Indians, which you're right, it's a category of people, uh, and and also odd to to name a team like that. But in Washington's case, I was just surprised that they weren't prepared with a new team name. Um, and I suppose that the Cleveland Indians will take the time to go through that process so that in 2022, they can unveil a new team name, New Jersey's, maybe they'll get some, some cash on the back end of this. Um, but that's the story there. couple MLB headlines, but let's, let's launch into what really counts right now, which is the off season. And usually there's some spending, there's some trading, um, but we've seen uh, baseball quiet down um, in terms of its offseason activity. And, and we're clearly uh, facing a depressed market here, Nick. I mean, it's evident that, that no one is, is making the big splash um, and, and that somebody like Trevor Bauer may have to wait for his market to evolve. Um, but there's no question that the New York Mets, and let's start with the Mets, are in on that market, that they are on the phone with Trevor Bauer's agents. Um, We previewed what they'd done, James McCann. And to me, the James McCann move is clearly um, just the first of two or three big moves that they may make this offseason and hopefully a bridge to a bigger move. 
My guy is Trevor Bauer. He's the National League Cy Young pitching to a sub two ERA. He's got a great attitude. Um, this is a guy that, to me, needs to be a Met in a market where clearly the Mets are the only big players. They can't let it shake out that they walk away from this offseason without Trevor Bauer. I'm putting it all in on Bauer. I think the James McCann move tells you that they are going to be interested in making a couple other ones that are bigger splashes because Real Muto seemed to me to be the obvious sort of guy from a catching standpoint that the Mets were going to go after. And when they don't, and they make sort of a, not to say that $10 million a year is a cheap move by any stretch, but it's not something that you are significantly investing in or married to from the perspective of Steve Cohen, their owner. So when, when you sit there and, and make that move, it signals that you're going to make other ones that are bigger. And I, I echo everything that you said about Trevor Bauer as a guy who you like the mentality that he brings to any organization that he is with. I think it's about finding the right fit for him, but you know that he is really invested in winning, but also at the same time, a guy that that may not not to say that there are concerns about his his character but his personality fit within certain organizations and i think that in the new york market he is a guy who can thrive because of that personality where maybe in the in the smaller markets you you get some you don't get as much passion from the fan base and you're you're sitting there and and bauer can be sometimes critical of of certain aspects of that to me, he, he strikes me as someone who would really find success in New York and would thrive off of that attention and, and that intensity, especially for a Mets team that could be an upstart or even a Yankees team that is hoping to get back into the World Series fold and conversation going forward. I don't expect the Yankees to be a player for Trevor Bauer, but just that New York market as the example. I think Springer is the guy for the Mets, though. I think that's really the target that they have. Uh, apparently in some of the reporting that I have been reading, they are sort of really focusing in on improving their outfield. And and I don't think that the Bauer move is something that should be diminished because I think they can make both. I don't know that one happens without the other, especially because of the nature of Cohen buying the team. And he didn't absorb the same financial losses as the other owners, the other 29 owners in major league baseball. So right. the, the James McCann move signals to you that they are going to be players in other areas. They could have chose to spend the, however many million dollars they have to spend this off season on real Muto and say a, a lower level starting pitcher and then a lower level outfielder. They choose not to do that. They, they save at catcher. If you can call $10 million a year saving but then they'll go and spend in the other areas. And, and I think Trevor Bauer is a very realistic possibility for the Mets in addition to Springer. It's kind of odd. You see the roles reverse here. The Mets are the team that everybody's looking at. And we, you know, consider them to be in on the top pitcher this year, who, unlike Garrett Cole, is going to demand, I mean, he, he's a bit older than Garrett Cole, but he'll demand probably four years at a high AAV or five years, something like this is the, the report. I mean, and that's going to be his response to a market uh, that unlucky for him is just not really willing to go spend the way that the Yankees were on Garrett Cole. So the Mets have the chance to 
get lucky in that regard and, and get somebody like Bauer in the prime of his career. Um, yes, you're going to have to pay him a lot um, on an annual basis, but potentially not have to lock him in until he's an older guy. You could get him from his year 30 to year 34 season um, or 35, and, and the really good pitchers can continue to be good into their mid-30s, as we know. Right. So I consider Bauer to be my number one guy, and I think about a Mets rotation. This is a team that its foundation, and Sandy Alderson built it. And, and the structure that the team still has, the parts that are still good about the team um, are mostly the product of Sandy Alderson's work and, and now mostly his draft picks and some other moves, Syndergaard being a, an acquisition of his. But you, you look at a rotation that starts with DeGrom and Bauer and is followed by Syndergaard and Stroman, and it, it instantly goes from a rotation that was below average last year to it has to be one of the better rotations in all of baseball. And, and, and to me, it, it shouldn't exclude George Springer. It absolutely shouldn't. But there are other guys in the outfield market, um, like a Marcelo Zuna, who I, I know there are flags about his defense. But to me, someone like Ozuna is a, is a better um, counter uh, to Springer than is the next best pitcher after Bauer. And, and so that's why... I think Bauer needs to be the big fish where things are different here is that the Yankees are not in the conversation about somebody like Trevor Bauer or even somebody like JT real Muto. And that's where you've seen the narrative shift. And of course, most centrally DJ LeMahieu, a guy that the Yankees don't appear to be committed to having, they don't appear to be intent on keeping and every day it becomes more and more possible to me that he won't be in a Yankee uniform. And I think that is just stunning. I, I don't know if that is necessarily the case. Uh, there's been some mixed reporting about some stuff where you sit there and you hear, oh, they were $25 million apart, which sounds like a large number. But really what it comes down to is the number of years that DJ LeMahieu wants he's going to get around $25 million per year. So when you're $25 million apart, it's really not the $25 million that is separating you. It's more, um, do we want to give him four years or five? So that's point number one. The Yankees and Brian Cashman, since they have operated and he's been their general manager, have shown a propensity to be hesitant at times to pay position players. And right now, that kind of looks okay when they choose not to pay Robinson Cano or, or somebody uh, of that caliber on the back end. You look at some of the deals that have been made traditionally with Albert Pujols. The one that sticks out for me is one that Cashman made in 2007 with Alex Rodriguez. And as good as he was for maybe the first few years of that contract, the Yankees really bought the bullet, bit the bullet on, on that contract towards the end of things and with the suspension they kind of got bailed out of not having to pay it for a year but he comes back and they end up having to cut him in 16 and they're still on the books for another year at a high number the distinction and this will relate back a little bit to the average and what you were talking about with Trevor Bauer is the Yankees have not been shy about paying for starting pitching in that same way they were very willing to pay CC Sabathia and they were even successful enough in that contract to re-up and pay him on a one-year deal at a lesser value. 
The difference with starting pitchers is that they are not as much of an albatross because they can still be serviceable to your baseball team at the back end of the contract. No one's saying that Garrett Cole at age 37 or you know 36, 37 will be the same pitcher that he is right now or worth that $35 million. But he can still be someone who is pitching at, say, a $20, $20 million a year level as that type of, say, three, four, you know, three and a half, four ERA guy that will only really result in you losing $15 million on your budget. To me, that's the biggest thing. And, and getting back to now DJ LeMahieu, do the Yankees want to take the loss of a guy who is at, at 36, 37 years old, really not going to be productive at all? And you can take the, the conversation in two ways. DJ LeMahieu is a guy who you feel like is, is an outstanding baseball player, and it's about his ability to play the game of baseball, if that makes sense, as opposed to him being a physical specimen. He is not somebody who relies on being a, a great physical athlete to be successful in the way that he plays baseball. There is an argument to be made that because he doesn't rely on that physicality, he will play well at age 36 and 37 the way he is right now because it's really not going to make – much of a difference what kind of shape he's in. At the same time, there is also the other side of that argument that says he's not in that great shape right now. So what is he going to look like when he's 36 and 37 and he may not be able to play this way because he is not a guy who's like a John Carlos Stanton or an Aaron Judge who, yes, even if they lose a, a step, you're still confident that they are uh, of the physical stature and physical nature to be a successful baseball player. So it's a really in-depth sort of conversation and with all that said I think the Yankees are going to get it done there's no way they're going to let DJ LeMayhew as a guy who's been so crucial to their operation walk out the door I think it gets done with those four years maybe a fifth year option a vesting option with with something attached to the end of it but I can't see DJ LeMayhew leaving town well, if you can believe it, as we were talking, really, as I was talking, um, there is a report from ESPN. It's it's five minutes old as I'm reading it. Um, and, and it's the manager, Aaron Boone, who says he wants LeMahieu to be, quote, a Yankee for a long time. That That's the first indication that the Yankees have given. So I, I can almost retract what I said. We might even have to, to, to re-scrub uh, the recording here. Because I was saying this without the Yankees ever vocalizing this. This is the first time, as far as I know, that they vocalized it because Cashman wasn't committal. Here's Aaron Boone saying they are focused on re-signing uh, LeMahieu and it's their top priority. These were the, the words that we haven't heard, and now we've heard them. So I can, I can agree with everything you just said. I think the Yankees, based on this, um, will get it done. I mean, I, I am curious about your argument, though, that – I mean, are you are you saying that a position player doesn't age as well as a pitcher as a matter of principle? Because I don't yes. know that. I, yes, you are saying that. I mean, is that is that statistically? Uh, do you back that statistically? Uh, as as opposed to backing statistically, I, it depends on what metric you try and measure it by. Obviously, in, in ERA and in OPS are not comparable. I suppose right. that WAR is the only sort of statistic that might attempt to bridge that gap. And then you're talking about how much do you believe in that statistic? And it's difficult right. to measure how successful a pitcher is versus a hitter towards the end of his career. What I would tell you is that my eyes in the eye test would say 
that how often do you see a position player be successful into his late 30s compared to what we see out of starting pitchers? It's just not it's just not the same. There are there is a greater number of those types of pitchers, whether it be uh, a CC Sabathi at the end of his career where he sort of reinvented himself or Andy Pettit for the Yankees was still a key cog for them winning the World Series in 09. Roy Halladay was very good in Philadelphia towards the twilight of his career. Mariano Rivera as a reliever was outstanding his whole career, but certainly didn't drop off as he got older. There are not as many examples of position players who play really well into their late 30s and early 40s. And it's more of the scare tactic of the things that you've seen out of the players and the big contracts that haven't gone the right way. Robinson Cano right now is one that I think is a great example. Yeah. He got he got a 10-year deal. What what does that thing look like right now? He's not a guy that you want on your roster. Albert Pujols the same way. He is he is kind of dead weight right now for the Los Angeles Angels. And it's it's not to say he's not putting together major league quality at bats. But if you think of the scope of, of the replacement level of player for him, you could get someone who does what he does for five to $10 million a year, and they're paying him 30. So you're, you're losing more as opposed to what the Yankees, I think, are, are hopeful or more comfortable that it's, it's the baseline of, of the, it's the floor, it's the baseline of not having that contract flame out. It's not to say that Garrett Cole is, again, going to pitch to a, three ERA when he's 37 years old, but you are confident that he's not going to be someone who you sit there and say, we got to eat the, the last 30, 60, $90 million on this contract. Cause this is a guy who's just not worth being on our major league roster right now. So I think that teams, especially in, in an environment where the budgets have to be tight are just so much more comfortable with paying pitchers as opposed to position players and it's paying in the context of years about going to that fifth year, sixth year, seventh year. Pitchers are going to get that because they feel like even if it's not, they're not worth it at the back end, they can still help your baseball team. Position players, you're running the risk and it's a whole different ball game, so to speak. Yeah, it's an interesting question. And, and I'm sure it's something that front offices, a conversation that front offices across the sport are having. I mean, a couple names that come to mind, um, and I'd have to do some real thinking about it because there certainly are exceptions to this um, as far as hitting. But a couple, but Miguel Cabrera is one who's now 37 and, and he didn't do much last year. But up until his age 35 season, he was a 300 hitter. Sure. With, uh, and uh, and I'm, I'm just looking at his, his baseball reference here. Nelson okay. Cruz he, is another he, one, too, by the way. He, he's he's a good one. I mean, but but even but you can clearly see a regression from Cabrera. He only slugged uh, 400 in 2019. Uh, the other guy that came to mind was Joey Votto, who's been doing it well for so long. But he had a down year this year. And, and the only, and the other aspect to this, I would also point out, not in the case of, of Votto, at least, but he's younger than both Cabrera and Nelson Cruz. He's actually 37. He's the same age as Cabrera. Is he the same Cabrera. age as Cabrera? Okay, so yeah. he's 37. He's a little bit older than I would have anticipated is the defense aspect of it too, right? So Miguel yeah. Cabrera has been relegated to playing DH even. He, he's not even really playing first base right now. Nelson Cruz is exclusively a DH and Votto's a first baseman. So maybe the, the first baseman is the exception to the rule where those guys can play defensively. But 
give me a, a guy who's playing left field, right field at 37, 38 years old. And, and Ryan it's, Braun. It's, a, it's a much smaller list to the point where you're sitting there and saying, wow, this is a contract that we really feel like we won with on, on the big time scale. I think Detroit would love to move Miguel Cabrera if they could. I just don't think it's something that's realistic for them. So with that knowledge and that information in mind, I would not expect teams to go to that extra year or two with the position players because it is just shown to not work out. And look, someone someone's going to do it because at the end of the day, someone's going to mortgage the future to try and be successful now. DJ LeMahieu right now is a great player. What he's going to look like at 37, 38, who knows? And maybe you have confidence that he can buck the trend, but it's just not something that I think a lot of teams are, are willing to put up with or, or a risk that a lot of teams feel like is, is a good risk to take. And, and maybe that's the best way to phrase it, where it, it still might work out, but in the process of building your organization and building your team, it is something that is more likely than not to be something that you're going to end up regretting. But at the end of the day, maybe DJ LeMahieu is the quality of player. And I think he is right now where it doesn't matter if you're getting diminishing returns on that contract at age 37. He's good enough right now that this is someone you want to keep around. Well, you can justify the future losses with the present gains. If you think that you're getting, and I think you are, at $25 million or whatever it ends up being, and it could even be less based on the market, um, that that you're getting a good bet on him now um, sometimes makes it worth it to get a bad bet on him in the latter years. The DH certainly helps, and, and that may well be universal. Um, but right now we don't Frustrating know. Frustrating for uh, NL teams that don't know, just to I, sort of I, throw that I, in I, there. I think it's absurd that, yeah. that baseball can't come to – a decision on this it, it sort of seems to be inevitable but why not just let national league teams know uh it's something that for the mets is, 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 a, is yeah, a great benefit right you to, you mentioned marcelo zuna which i thought was a, a guy who would fit well with that mets organization but he is not a guy who is somebody who's pretty quite frankly good defensively i mean he is a defensive no. liability so the conversation for the mets certainly changes about okay how do we approach our outfield if we can sign Marcelo Zuna to DH as opposed to, you know, play left field every day? Because he, he's got to play left field every day. That is different from just signing on a guy who's a really good hitter. It is, and and it, it certainly opens up things for the Mets with, with someone like Dominic Smith, who is blocked at first base by Peter Lonzo. So it's helpful for the Mets and, and helpful for the kind of team that Sandy Alderson is trying to bring. Um, and on that, uh, trying to build, and on that note, um, they hire a general manager. Um, Jared Porter comes from the Arizona organization and seems to be an interesting pick. This is a situation where Alderson is clearly in control of the operation. Um, he's making the decisions. They, of course, make, made the McCann decision before they brought in uh, the new general manager. Um, but someone that uh, Sandy is grooming to be his successor um, and, and possibly get a promotion to president of baseball operations, maybe a year from now, maybe two years from now. But in any case, the emphasis seems to be on building out a talented front office where they can draw some of the, the best minds um, that the sport will, will have to offer uh, building out an analytics team, which the Mets have neglected to do for uh, a criminal period of time. Um, and Alderson is one of the forefathers of the analytics movement so you imagine that there will be real investment in that under Steve Cohen. Um, 
but the the Mets are building out a real organization here, and you know it, it's very hard to to make a judgment about a baseball executive who we don't know much about, who's never been in real decision making control. Um, but needless to say, uh, I, I saw him on his on his introductory Zoom. And he appears to be a real baseball professional, and we're going to give him the benefit of the doubt until until we learn something about him that that isn't good. But in any case, I don't think he's making the calling the shots um, in the Mets organization just yet. Yeah, I think that's the most important most important part of this whole equation is that Sandy Alderson is still in charge, and and another signal sent by the signing of James McCann is that he is still running the baseball operations right now not that he wouldn't but it's not just oh I'm going to sit there and oversee things and make sure that the general manager we hire is doing a good job no I'm going to go out there and be responsible for spending the money that we're spending so Porter a guy who was with the Red Sox in the early 2000s goes to the Cubs and the Diamondbacks there's there's not much there it's it's always difficult with these types of hires where it's a a first-time GM a first-time head coach, a first time, right. you know, whatever it is, manager, there's, there's only so much information you have to draw on about them serving in different roles. And how do you think that personality and, and type of person will transition to being a general manager? I don't know that it's something that's at the top of the list of concern right now for the Mets, because until he is in a position where he is clearly running the baseball operation, I don't know that he is anything other than somebody who is going to be a cook in the kitchen and informing Sandy Alderson what's going on. So hard, hard to say one way or the other, whether you really like this hire or don't like this hire, because I think it's, it's more about the rebranding of the, the Mets organization and, and seeing how things are, are going to go from there. The one thing that's striking more, more so maybe the only thing that I can kind of read into this is that he's only 41 years old. So a younger general manager, that's the way that baseball is trending but but as somebody who I'm not terribly familiar with, he is somebody who, who I do know is more invested in the analytics side, is someone who's going to pay attention to that. And that seems to be clearly a point of emphasis for the Mets this go round with their baseball operation. And if you're not doing it now, then you frankly miss the boat. I mean, every successful organization in baseball is placing a heavy emphasis on analytics, I would imagine that we're going to see other sports follow this trend. I mean, you've already seen basketball move in this direction. I, I don't know that football is of the same. I don't know if football could could harness analytics the same way, but that's a conversation for another day. And we'll keep you. Deep Podesta, sorry. Okay, go yeah. ahead. Yeah, yeah, and in and and I, he's he's still with the Browns. Deep Podesta. Yeah. Okay, yeah. all right. And and look, they're uh, what are they nine and four now? Nine and four now. So that's our show. Uh, we'll keep you abreast on DJ LeMahieu and the Yankees. They figure to, uh, and, and we sort of changed our tune here as a report came out during the show, but they figure to be the, the, the heaviest player to bring back uh, a guy who has been outstanding for them um, the last couple of seasons. The Mets, on the other hand, um, they, are, they are in this free agent market. They may well be defining this free agent market as they look for Trevor Bauer. Um, George Springer, another name to keep your uh, your eye on. They've already signed the catcher, James McCann, to a four-year, $40 million deal. Um, and we'll keep you updated with all of that here on the Nosebleeds podcast. I'm with Nick DeLuca. I'm Chris Boccia. Thanks for listening to WFUV Sports, and we'll talk to you next week.